everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. Today it's me, Jeff, and I'm here with Greg and Aaron to talk about planning an epic mountain bike trip. So again, this is the time of year, New Year's, when a lot of people start planning trips that they want to take in 2016, and so we thought we'd talk about some tips for planning a big mountain bike trip in the new year. So I'm going to start off by asking, how do you guys even choose where to go for a mountain bike trip in the first place? Yeah, that's a great question because there's so many variables to take into effect, including time of year, the type of riding you want to do, how close you want to be to certain amenities, how far you want to travel from home, and so much more. You know, personally, I factor in time of year and weather first and foremost, then look at the map and try to figure out where I haven't been yet or where I still want to explore more. As an example, last November, we were trying to take a trip, so um, partially so my wife could see some fall colors and like all the leaves had already fallen in Colorado. We wanted to see some more colors, but I also wanted to do some good riding and we wanted good weather, but we didn't want to have to drive like 24 hours back to the East Coast. So that sort of created the parameters for us to choose like where we wanted to go on our trip. But if you need help with ideas, be sure to check out many of the articles that we've written, including top 10 bike destinations in North America top 10 mountain bike cities, top 10 weekend mountain bike destinations, and so many more. That is a great plug. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, that's a, you know, but that's honestly a lot of, you know, what we do on single tracks is help you guys try to find the best trails to ride and the best places to go, you know? That's right. Um, do the legwork for you. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my friend Chris, he does a big mountain bike trip every year, like takes a week and gets a bunch of people together to go on this go on a trip and I think what he usually does is he comes up with a list of like half a dozen destinations a lot of times it's based on you know magazine articles he's read during the year about cool places that sound interesting and then he has people vote and so they go through and if people are interested in doing the trip this year they vote on where they want to go and then whatever gets the most votes that's where they end up going so He's been doing it for several years, and I think they've hit a lot of really cool places. I would add to kind of what Greg said, some factors that may help you choose where you're going to go in the first place is time. You know, how long can you be away from home or work? You know, are you talking about taking an open-ended trip, or do you just have a weekend, or do you have a week? Money, obviously, is going to factor in. Uh, you know, are you doing this trip on a shoestring budget, or are you, you know, are you balling out? that really impacts what your available destinations are. And then also your mode of transportation definitely is a factor. You know, are you going to take your own car, do a road trip style, or are you going to fly? Yeah, that's a good point. And that's one of the questions I had was how do you decide if you're going to drive or fly? Like what are some of the considerations for making that decision? Well, with I would say with driving, you have a lot more flexibility. You know, if you get somewhere and the weather is bad or maybe the trails aren't as great as you'd hope, you just pack up and you head on down the road to somewhere else. You have the ability to carry more stuff with you, you know, so you can bring you can bring camping gear, you can bring lots of food, you can bring water, spare parts, you know, tires, wheels, that kind of stuff, which you can't necessarily do when you're flying. And then flying, with some of the you know the considerations there. Obviously, it's faster, and you can get here in Atlanta. I want to go to a trip in Wyoming. You know, driving doesn't really make sense because I'm going to spend the better part of three days of my trip just getting there, getting to and from the destination. 
so that you know it broadens your options for your destinations. It can be more expensive. You know, it depends on where and when you're flying and what the airlines are doing in terms of ticket prices. And you know, especially with current gas prices being so low, you know, driving does seem a bit more attractive right now. And flying, it limits what you can bring unless you just want to spend a ton of money on baggage fees. You got to be smart about how you pack. So that that does mean you're probably going to have to leave a lot of spare parts that you you may otherwise want to bring with you. You're going to have to leave those at home. And uh, you know, flying with your bike is expensive and it can be a major pain in the ass you know a case for a bike is not cheap at all even some of the lower end like but they're still constructed of cardboard cases but like flying specific cases can still be over a hundred dollars you know and then if you're looking at you know some of the the nicer either hard-sided cases or dedicated really nice bike bags you're looking at three to five hundred bucks and then, of course, the airlines are going to ding you with some oversized baggage fee or special equipment fees. Like I, I looked in Delta charges $150 each way for a bicycle. United charges between $150 to $200 depending on where you're flying each way. So, you know, you're talking $300 to $400 on top of the price of the ticket. So Might as well just buy your bike a seat and like bring it on the <laughs> airplane with you. Exactly. I will say, you know, there's there's services, there's a company called Bike Flights, and they'll ship your bike for you, and it's it's cheaper than shipping it yourself because they negotiate rates with, you know, UPS and FedEx and DHL, whoever, and it costs around $75 each way, so it's about half the cost of flying with your bike, so that's a pretty substantial savings. But, you know, the drawback there is you are shipping your bike, so, you know, you will be without it for let's say essentially almost a week leading up to your trip. And then, you know, you're going to be waiting for it for like a week afterwards. But for the money you're saving, it could it could be well worth it. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me more and more of the people that I know that fly to go on mountain bike trips, most of them just come to the conclusion that it's going to be better to rent a bike anyway at their destination because of the fees you mentioned. And a lot of people too, they like to try a new bike or, you know, maybe a nicer bike than what they actually have at home. So I think very few of my friends actually fly with bikes. They usually just end up renting. Yeah, I mean, when you consider you can you can rent pretty much, you know, the nicest bike available for around $100 a day or, or less, you know, if you're renting it for several days in a row, like maybe you can, you know, work out some sort of some sort of deal with the bike shop. But yeah, that starts to look like a better option. And, and then you just don't have the headache of all the logistics of packing your bike up and you know, shipping it and then rebuilding your bike when it arrives and all that jazz. Yeah. Yeah. And even trying to get it in a rental car at the airport. And oh, yeah. I mean, just transporting it is yeah a real pain in the ass. For all the things you guys mentioned, those are all really good points. And because of them, I always prefer to drive if I can, especially since I can bring my own bike, which is dialed in. Um, but I also mentioned if I'm on the road for a week or more, I always bring a backup bike too, at least one backup bike, maybe more depending on how many riders we have. You know, So let's say you have two people plus a backup bike or two, you're talking three or four bikes you're on a road trip, which uh, can be really handy, especially like let's say you break something on your main rig when you're in a destination. Like going, I've done it plenty of times, but going to a shop and trying to get it fixed can be a hassle sometimes. Sometimes they might not have the part in stock 
or it's something super specialized that needs to get shipped out to the brand to get fixed. So having a backup bike that's already tuned and ready to go can really save you time and headache when you're traveling. Yeah, I vote for driving. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point, Greg. And that's actually why on my own personal bikes, I tend to use the same drivetrain components across them. So, you know, I will bring a backup bike and if something breaks on the main bike and I want to keep riding that, like, you know, say I ruin a rear derailleur, I can just snag the rear derailleur off the backup bike. So I try to, for my personal bikes, I try to build them up the same way. And that's one of the reasons why it makes stealing parts off them a lot easier. Yeah, that's a good point. Pro tip is also to make sure that your backup bike is in perfect operating condition as well. On a trip to California, I had, what did I do? Oh, I broke the frame on my main rig, so totally out of commission. Um, and then my backup bike had some drivetrain parts that I hadn't replaced that I knew needed to be replaced. And so that <laughs> set me back a couple of days of riding because I was like, well, the main rig is not working and the backup rig needs work. So make sure both <laughs> of your bikes are in good operating condition. So once once someone has selected a, a destination for where they want to take their trip, what are, what's the best way to find the best trails to ride? I mean, a lot of times... This is going to be somewhere you've never been, where maybe you don't know anybody who even lives there. So how do you find the goods for your trip? Singletracks.com. <laughs> but in reality, no, we have a database of know, tens of thousands of trails around the world. And I mean, that's what I've been using for about a decade now. When I show up in a new place, I'm like, I want to ride. Where should I go? And I honestly use our app. I use our database. And that's where where I begin structuring our trip, and it's been working well for me for about 10 years now. But number two, local advice is always good, too. You know, sometimes there are trails we don't have listed in the database, or there have been changes of trails, new trails put in, something of that nature. So talking to the locals, including local shops, is always a good choice. However, caveat with that, I've had plenty of issues talking with local shops and trying to get ride advice. When you roll into a shop and you're like, hey, we're mountain biking, where should we ride? They're going to generally send you, they have like a stock response, right? It's the trails that are probably most convenient, closest to town. And that might not be difficult because they don't want to send some stupid tourist on like a super hard trail out in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And I had that issue one time rolling in the steamboat trying to figure out where to ride. We got sent to this trail system. I was like, this kind of sucks. Like, seriously? (laughs) This is the best you guys have? And no, it wasn't the best they had. You know, it took us like three trips to the same shop before they're like, well, you could try this route over here, which turned out to be fantastic 35 mile backcountry, you know, shuttle run. So definitely grain of salt with asking shops for advice. Yeah, I would, um, I've, I've actually had pretty good luck dealing with local shops. I, I think you are right that, you know, maybe people will size you up when you walk through the door and have certain expectations or, or assumptions about your abilities that may or may not be true. But one thing I've found is if you're going to be in a destination for a few days, you know, ask that shop if they have any group rides. Because, you know, a lot a lot of shops do. A lot of shops have a, you know, a weekly ride, you know, maybe in the evenings or something after the shop closes. And they're shop guys, so they're going to pick a really fun route. So I've uh, I've had good luck with that. And then once, you know, you get to ride with them and you're they think you're cool or whatever that maybe they'll maybe they'll give you some better trail info yeah and i always like to when i go into the local bike shop i'm like you greg i've i've had a lot of hit or miss experiences doing that 
And a lot of times it's like, well, you know, oh, there's there's one mechanic that rides mountain bikes, but like he's not in right now. I don't really know. You know, I get that response a lot. But at least when you're in the shop, like look for a map, buy a local map. And a lot of times that is the greatest resource you'll have because it, it shows everything and you can look on the map. And a lot of times it'll have the routes graded by difficulty and all that stuff. And so you can pick it based on what you know you're able to do and what you know you're interested in. Because like you said, the people at the shop, they don't know you. They don't know what kind of rides you're looking for. You can try to tell them, but yeah, that's not always going to work out. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I always, you know, while I use single tracks generally first and foremost, whenever I show up in a spot, I always try to pick up a good paper map for the area because that's just impossible to beat. And sometimes, like for instance, on single tracks, we'll have like a bunch of trails listed that are really good. I'm like, oh, I want to hit these trails. I pick up a paper map and I'm like, well, I can actually combine all three of these into one like big 25 mile loop or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. You know, so it definitely opens up options. Yeah, another another good thing that the shop can help you with is like deciding which direction to go because maybe you have maybe you have a trail in mind that you want to ride, but they're like, no, you don't want to ride it clockwise. You know, they, they can give you that kind of information. Like, no, that you definitely want to ride it this way. It's more fun. Like the descent's better, or whatever. So, yeah, definitely with conditions and stuff too. I, I think we ran into that when Greg and I went to Banff in Alberta, and there were certain trails that you know, looked looked awesome on paper, but then they would say, oh, it's actually closed for bear season or whatever. And so it definitely saved us a lot of hassle of like driving out to a trailhead and finding out that it was temporarily closed. Yeah, man, I feel like we missed out on one of the best trails in that area because that stupid bear closure. <laughs> Everybody was like, oh, you got to go ride this trail. Yeah. Come back in like two weeks. I'm like, we can't do that. <laughs> so Aaron, you mentioned earlier that deciding where to go and what to do on your trip a lot of times comes down to budget. And I want to talk about that a little bit too. Like what, what's the cheapest that you guys think you can get away with when you're budgeting a trip? Like what, you know, for somebody who just doesn't have any money, dirtbag mountain biker, <laughs> what, what's like the cheapest they could plan to do a trip, a multi-day trip? If you're doing a true dirtbag style, you can do it really cheap. You know, if you're staying in the national, I think it's national forest, you can pretty much camp anywhere. I think that's the case in Georgia anywhere. So, you know, you're not even, a lot of places you can, you can camp for free essentially. So, I mean, really all you're, all you're going to need to cover is your gas money and food. And then depending on what you want to eat, if you just want to eat ramen and, you know, peanut butter sandwiches, then you you could do you could do a several day trip on very little money. You know, I mean, even a couple hundred bucks would be more than enough to get you through a few days if you're doing it true dirtbag style. Yeah, and I've done that too, you know, and you always have to eat. So if you're <laughs> buying food affordably like at a grocery store and just like making it on the tailgate of your truck, literally your only additional cost over your general living cost is gas money, which right now is really cheap. So That's right. I got gas for a dollar eighty four this morning, y'all. Dang, right? Dang. <laughs> well, it's like yeah. one sixty in the plains right now. It's pretty awesome. Right? Wow. Well, yeah. I mean, take the car out of it, right? I mean, that's maybe that's part of the appeal of bike packing is you could just roll out of your door. You know, I mean, the equipment is not cheap, like ultralight bike packing stuff. But once you have that stuff, man, I mean, your cost is really just your food and parts, I guess. You know, the, the, the gear is not necessarily 
inexpensive, but it's also maybe not necessary. Like, you know, Alec uh, wrote an article last year about kind of DIY bikepacking. And I mean, if you, you can either get a cheap frame bag or kind of cobble together your own in a backpack, it's not going to be the most ideal setup, but you can make it work. Yeah. I guess if you took the car out of it, then you're, that's just food at that point. So (laughs) yeah. Why aren't we just going on trips every day? (laughs) Forget work. Like let's just tour around the country. That sounds like plan me. (laughs) I mean, we'll see you in Colorado in a couple months. (laughs) (laughs) So what other kind of places have you guys found that are good to stay at for a mountain bike trip? For me, I've had pretty good luck with using sites like Airbnb and VRBO to find, you know, sort of like private houses or cabins or whatever. A lot of times, especially if you're going with a group of people, it's a really inexpensive way, much cheaper than like everybody getting a hotel room or whatever. And and it's just a lot more fun that way too, when you're all in one spot and you're sharing a kitchen and, you know, that kind of stuff. I would say plus one to the Airbnb idea. You know, I've crashed with uh, Jeff and Leah in an Airbnb before and it's super fun. And uh, actually, Summer and I, in the trip I was mentioning recent, recently where we're trying to find some leaves, we did our first Airbnb rental and ab- had an absolutely fantastic time. And it was cheap and roomy. I mean, it was an awesome experience. We're like, why haven't we been doing this before? It also makes it a lot easier to handle your bikes and store your bikes than, say, staying at a hotel, especially if you're in a bigger hotel that's multiple stories, like you know where you're going to stash your bike, how you're going to store it and keep it safe. Like That can be difficult, but if you're in like more like a house or a cabin, that's a, that's a cinch. Another bonus is lots of times you're going to have better access to Airbnbs in small mountain towns that you know, might have your best options for trails. Where were we? We rented one in Peonia, and there isn't even like a hotel in Peonia. So it was that or like crashing the National Forest, and Airbnb is a good option. I've done trips staying at just about any place imaginable. I've stayed in tents, hostels, hotels, resorts, every possible permutation. And tent camping on the National Forest is definitely the cheapest way, which we already discussed. And the only potential issue with that is that you have you know, more logistics in planning where to go and finding a spot and then driving to and from. And you don't, also don't have some of the nice amenities that you might need if you're riding for like a week at a time, such as showers and places to clean up as easily. So definitely take that into consideration. So if you don't want to go quite tent, you can always do a hostel, which I've also had pretty good luck with. And that's another thing a lot of mountain towns are getting into now is hostels, but like high quality hostels. So you might still be spending 25, 30 bucks a night, but that's still way cheaper than say a hotel room. Yeah, I would say um, kind of going back to what Jeff mentioned on sharing a, a cabin with somebody, like having that kitchen there is actually awesome because that allows you to, to cook food, which can be, which can save you a lot of money, especially if you're splitting the cost of food amongst you know, everyone that's staying there. You can really whittle down the cost when you're uh, buying in bulk for a lot of people. And I would also say resorts are a good place to stay. A lot of major resorts out west you know ski season is still their biggest time of the year that's their busiest time that's when their rates are going to be highest so in the summer you know you can actually stay at some resorts for 
a lot cheaper than you'd think. It's obviously not going to be as cheap as camping or a hostel or you know maybe renting a house, but it's not going to be like the the peak season prices. So, you know, if you want to go a little little fancier and you know class it up, you know, check out check out a resort because um, the summer is is tends to be their slow time. So, you find some good deals. Yeah, I've definitely found that. And what I've found with resorts too that makes them a good choice. For people with families is that a lot of times they have a lot of other stuff to do there so you know they're going to have a pool and they're going to have like an alpine slide or you know other stuff going on like right at the slopes for people of all ages so it's really good if like your whole family doesn't ride and you need stuff for them to do while you're shredding that's actually a good segue into my final question about other stuff to do so you know obviously you can't can't ride your bike all day maybe I mean, some people can, but most of us don't. Most of us are probably going to be content with riding, you know, half day or, you know, long, maybe six to eight hours, but that still leaves a lot of other hours to do stuff. So what do you guys like doing when you're on a mountain bike trip, when you're not biking? I personally like to drink, (laughs) but, well, I always like to drink, but the fun thing about traveling to new places is that you get to drink local brews. And especially with the explosion in craft beer and the prominence that has in a lot of mountain states like Colorado, California, and Oregon, is that you're going to find probably at least several local options in whatever town you're in, if not more. And piggybacking off of that, um, if you're in a legit spot like, say, Bend, Oregon, you can also do brewery tours for a fun and low-key sort of event that doesn't take a lot of work or planning. Like Bend, for instance instance we did a bunch of we had a bunch of breweries while we were there for about a week and there are enough breweries in bend that you could do a brewery tour every night for two weeks and it's still maybe not hit all them so wow. lots of good beer to be drunk those are good carbs <laughs> for riding the next day that's right recovery drinks <laughs> along those same lines i like to try to eat locally too i mean that's another part of experiencing a new place and getting to know the local scene and these days, it's always convenient to, you know, stop at Subway or something like that. But with smartphones and Yelp and all that stuff, I mean, it's so easy to find local places that are highly rated and, you know, that, that people enjoy eating at and that you're, you're going to have a good experience at. So I always like to try to find local places, especially like for me, barbecue is like a big thing. So I enjoy always sampling the barbecue wherever I am. I would say, you know, apart from exploring the town, which is always is always fun, checking out, you know, the shops and stuff that are there, and is other outdoor activities, you know, like hiking, checking out waterfalls, you know, stuff that you may be going right by on your rides, but maybe you're too busy riding to, you know, take the time to go and explore them. So it, it can be a nice break, too, to just put on the, the hiking boots and go stomp around for a little while and check out some different stuff at a different speed. Yeah. Especially in the summer, I like finding swimming holes. Yeah. One more pro tip I have for you guys is to plan doing some of those outdoor things uh, on a rest day. So if you're taking a long trip, like let's say more than five days, like let's say five to seven days, you probably be able to cover more ground on the bike and have more fun overall if you plan to take a dedicated rest day in the middle of your trip. You know, three days in, you might not feel like taking a day off from the bike but your your legs and your taint are really going to thank you if you <laughs> take a rest day otherwise you know you may hit like let's say day four of your trip 
and just be totally burnt out and riding and not be able to hit anymore. Whereas if you rode three days, rested one day, did something like found a swimming hole and then rode three more days, you're going to get six days of riding in. So just be conscious of sort of like, you know, your energy levels and your fitness and what you have going for you and maybe take a day off and you'll have more fun. Definitely. Sort of counterintuitive because you're like, dude, I'm here on a mountain bike vacation. I'm going to do mountain bike to the max. But yeah, you're right. You need some time off to make sure that you don't overdo it and end up the next, you know, last three days of your trip, like just sitting in the hotel room watching TV. Which can happen. One of our regular users, I think H. Proctor, has left us a few comments recently talking about he was doing a cross-country road trip and he rode for couple weeks straight as he was going through the, the southeast and then the plains but by the time he hit Colorado Wyoming and Montana he had so blown up his legs after riding for two or three weeks straight that he couldn't even ride had Oof. to take quite a significant amount of time off which stinks when you hit the best stuff you know so especially yeah. if you're doing a really long tour you know I've done two months on the road before and you really have to you know plan okay we're gonna hit these trails on these days, but just sit on the beach on this other day here. So yeah, definitely think about it. Well, here's one more question that I just thought of. So what do you do if the weather's bad? Like you've planned this trip all year long and you get out there and it's going to rain like for the next three days or snow. What do you, what do you guys do? If it's snow, you just go riding in the snow. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we've done. No, we, uh, on a recent, well, not recent, on one trip to park city, we rolled in and it started dumping the day we arrived. It was the first big snow of the season. Next day there was a four or five inch snow on the ground and we just rode anyway. But rain is is actually worse than snow, I would say. It's really bad rain. But I guess this goes back to what Aaron was saying about driving. You know, if you're in a car and you don't have like dedicated lodging like reservations, you can always go somewhere else. And it depends a little bit on where you are too, right? So if you're say in Colorado, you know, it could be raining at high elevation but dry at low elevation, or it could be raining on one side of a mountain range and not on the other. So, you know, sometimes you could just drive an hour and get better weather. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying too is you, you just need to be flexible. For that trip that you took to Park City, I, I know you guys kind of modified the schedule. Some of the trails that you had planned to hit weren't going to be possible with that snow. Yeah. And so you kind of move to a different trail that's going to be a little better. I know for me, I don't know, maybe people are going to be upset when they hear me say this, but I've been on <laughs> I've been on trips where it rained and I only have this one day to ride this one trail and I said, "Screw it." You yeah. know, like I'm here, like I'm never going to get this chance again, like I'm going to ride this trail. And I'm not talking about a trail that was closed. This was actually in Oregon where that's pretty common and I ended up riding a trail that wasn't closed or anything. And in fact, there were people out there working on the trail in the rain. They all waved me through and, you know, they weren't upset that I was riding it, but I, I felt a little guilty. But at the same time, I was like, you know what, this is why I came here. And hopefully I'm supporting the local economy a little bit. And <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's the right thing to do, but that's, that's what I've done. Well, I think it really depends on, on where you're riding. You know, I mean, if you're in the Pacific Northwest, then yeah, like it's going to rain. Same same kind of thing in Pisgah. You know, I've gone up there to ride and, you know, I had five days or whatever that I was spending up there. And it just, I mean, it's a temperate rainforest. So it's 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 going to rain. Like you can 
you can study the weather all you want and it can say it's not going to rain, but you don't really know until you get out there. So I, I think it really depends on the trail. You know, like for instance, if you're, if you are riding in Pisgah and it rains, then you just ride. Like that's just what you do. But I mean, obviously, you know, I don't think anyone's planning like a, a destination trip to like Blankets Creek or something, for instance, <laughs> but they close the trails when it rains. But, you know, I think for some of the kind of more of the, the destinations we'd be we're kind of talking about and that people would have in mind for a trip, they're probably not going to be closed for weather unless it's just horrible out. Yeah. Yeah. In general, I think you're right that mountain trails drain better. I mean, they're, they're made for riding in all conditions in a lot of cases. The other thing, you know, talking about rest days, like let's say you see a day of rain in the forecast, like choose that day to be your rest day you know maybe that doesn't fall like right in the middle of your trip but you know that you can still get the same benefits if you ride four days take a day off and ride two days you know and just sort of like flex your schedule to work with the weather you know you do that we just talked about endurance training recently do the same thing when you're training you know if it's going to be wet on a saturday maybe you ride on a sunday something of that nature so can generally make it work Well, cool. This has been a fun discussion. Remember, if you're enjoying the Single Tracks podcast, to be sure to rate us in the iTunes store or on Google Play. That's all we've got this time. We'll see you again next time. Peace.